0: It's simple. Shipping, logistics, capacity, access. We are connecting America's heartland to the rest of the world. It's not just about shipping. It's a story about how we're constantly innovating, how we move our products around the world. Cleveland is a port city. We've always been a port city. This is Great Lakes Forward. Welcome to today's episode of Great Lakes Forward. I'm your host, Jay Davis, and today we're discussing the Great Lakes St. Lawrence Seaway system from both an industry and a policy perspective. But before we get into that discussion, I want to provide a quick update on the 2021 shipping season here at the Port of Cleveland. So far, we're seeing a positive start. Our general cargo was up year over year through April, and uh, we welcomed our first shipment of ISO tanks to the port of Cleveland. Our maritime related infrastructure projects are well on their way, with some even reaching completion, such as our main gate and open is officially open, along with our Cleveland bulk term, terminal ore tunnel extension, which of uh, that ore tunnel extension is going to allow us a greater capacity to handle, especially iron ore, but also any other construction aggregates and, and other industrial heavy uh, metals that we uh, need to ship in and out of Cleveland. And so also construction on Docks 24 and 26 West at the International Terminals are set to begin in Q3 or Q4 this year. And those are out to bid at the Port of Cleveland's website, www.portofcleveland.com. Make sure you follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram at Port of Cleveland. And on Facebook, it's at the Port of Cleveland. So for the latest news, updates, and we're going to now dive into our our conversation after our brief commercial there to start. Today, I'm joined by Steve Fisher, Executive Director of American Great Lakes Port Association. Steve is not only a longtime advocate for maritime in the Great Lakes, economic development in the Great Lakes, and utilizing our inland water resources, but also I consider him one of the foremost experts on getting things done in Washington, D.C., no matter what the hurdles are, whether it's COVID or the partisan makeup or whatever the flavor of the day is, Steve has been there, has been consistent, and I definitely, definitely, definitely am glad that he's on our side. And so, Steve, thanks so much for joining us here at Great Lakes Forward.
1: Jade, I I appreciate you inviting me. Uh, Always eager to uh, chat with folks about the importance of shipping on the Great Lakes.
0: Great, great. And uh, again, with just such a large industry here, if you think about the Great Lakes, St. Lawrence Seaway, you're thinking about pretty much just from Lake Ontario and and, and the the start of the St. Lawrence River all the way over to Duluth, Minnesota. So, I mean, we're talking about a significant chunk of uh, real estate, but more so amount of jobs, cargo, lives impacted, and we're all doing it while dealing in fresh water. And so, Steve... Let's let's talk about your organization. Where are you located and what's your role within the American Great Lakes Ports Association? We're a Washington, D.C.-based organization. We were
1: originally created in the late 1970s by the various port agencies on the Great Lakes, including the Cleveland-Cuyahoga County Port Authority. The ports came together in the 1970s and realized that they wanted to work as a group together to try to address and, it, and impact federal policy for the benefit of enhancing shipping on the Great Lakes and enhancing the volume of cargo flowing through our ports. And ultimately, the main goal is to creating jobs, creating more jobs at our ports. So our organization was formed in the late 1970s. I am the third executive director of the organization. There were two individuals before me. I have been honored to represent the various port authorities here in D.C. We're one of the only Great Lakes regional organizations that's actually based in Washington as opposed to being based somewhere in the Great Lakes region. And the reason is that we take such a strong interest in lobbying Congress. And so we've always felt that it was better to have somebody on the ground here in D.C. I am located just a half mile from from Capitol Hill and often running up there to meet with individuals or to meet with officials at different federal agencies or officials on Capitol Hill. We try to maintain a close working relationship with all the various federal legislators from the Great Lakes state, particularly the ones who are on key congressional committees that impact the issues we care about. So so we're a DC-based organization because we feel we're we're more effective here. Obviously we coordinate closely with other regional Great Lakes groups both environmental groups, economic groups, different regional advocacy groups, for example, the Great Lakes Commission, the Great Lakes Cities Initiative, the Great Lakes Governors Conference and other Great Lakes advocacy organizations and try to work closely with them to advocate for the economy of our region uh, here in Washington.
0: Now, that's great. That's great. And and can you tell listeners how many member ports make up the LGPA and sort of what sort of the differences are? Sure, sure.
1: There are 15 member ports, which constitute the major commercial ports on the Great Lakes. There are a lot more ports on the Great Lakes, but we're largely the major ports, and then we're also the ports where there is a public agency. We are an association of public agencies. The thing to understand is that in many states, a local public agency has been created by the state legislature to help govern the major, the larger ports. And so our members are these port agencies, and we stretch uh, from one end of the Great Lakes to the other. We have members in every one of the eight Great Lakes states. As far west as Duluth, Minnesota and as far east as Ogdensburg, New York on the St. Lawrence River, and and everything in between. Our members are the port directors for those various ports, and we meet regularly to discuss public policy issues that are impacting the viability of maritime commerce on the Great Lakes, and, and then take that agenda to Washington. We're often leveraging each other to try to get our legislators to work on behalf of the group, behalf of the whole region. So sometimes the uh, legislator from Duluth might be re- on the right committee that's helpful to an issue we're working on, or perhaps it's a senator from Michigan, and and so we sort of leverage off each other and, and use the legislators from our region that that might be the best placed to try to advance our interests. In, in reality, I, I've got to give a shout out to our legislators, the group of them here in Washington. So these are the legislators from the eight Great Lake states. They're happy to work together cooperatively in advocacy for our region and uh, realizing that West Coast legislators or Gulf of Mexico legislators or legislators from the Sun Belt, these other regions of the country, they're all working together to try to best advocate for their part of the country. So we try to work with our team from the Great Lakes region to try to advance interests and issues that impact this not only the maritime system but the economy of our region and try to make sure federal
0: policy is kind to our to our region and helps benefit our region no i mean that that competition and being able to you know po- policy affects your ability to compete policy affects mm-hmm. uh, your ability to compete affects the availability of Jobs of goods and services, and and those things all affect quality of life on down the line. And so it's just I hope our viewers, our listeners, can understand how interconnected all these things are. And so, you know, sort of stand on that that topic today. I really want us to focus on the the topic of Great Lakes region across this Great Lakes St. Lawrence Seaway system. And how to keep the Great Lakes competitive, how to keep us, how to keep this region competitive when it comes to maritime imports and exports. As we know, Great Lakes shipping, shipping by vessels doesn't end during the winter. These vessels are delivering goods to and from destinations in the Great Lakes region, also known as Lakers that are mostly domestic, you know, U.S. port to U.S. port, U.S. owned ships. And then also, however, in the winter months, the St. Lawrence Seaway freezes. And since the Seaway connects global shipping to the Great Lakes via the Atlantic Ocean, international vessels cannot deliver directly into the Great Lakes in some of those winter months, especially like the January to early March time frame. So as shippers and carriers are considering, you know, our trade route, you know, I know this does cause some concern. Could you sort of explain that, Steve, as far as like how you see the Great Lakes place and sort of this year round shipping ecosystem? and just ways we can do to sort of help maintain that system and improve it? Sure, sure. So for those who don't know,
1: for ships to navigate on the Great Lakes and then between the Great Lakes and the Atlantic Ocean, they have to go through uh, a series of navigation locks. There are a total of 16 navigation locks on the Great Lakes, and if a ship were heading into the Great Lakes so from the Atlantic Ocean, they would head head west on the St. Lawrence River, passing Montreal, and, and right at Montreal is the first lock, and by the time it gets to Lake Superior, it will have gone through 16 of these locks that will actually lift the ship up, but Lake Superior is higher than the, the Atlantic Ocean, so as, as ships go west, they, they get lifted. A total of 600 feet, which is 60 stories. So this is a, quite an engineering feat, but that infrastructure, that, that, lock infrastructure it's made of concrete and steel. And uh, during the winter months, when the water freezes, uh, and mind you, fresh water freezes, earlier and harder than uh, salt water and the Great Lakes are freshwater. But when that water freezes, that infrastructure becomes difficult to operate. And so historically, the locks have closed down during the winter months because of the ice, but also because they require maintenance every year to keep them in in good operating shape. And the federal agencies that own and operate and manage that lock infrastructure require a couple to three, two or three months a year to do their maintenance where ships aren't passing through and they can do all the maintenance for the year during that downtime and then hopefully remain open and operating for the remaining months of the year, the remaining nine months of the year. So so historically, we've ended up with a seasonal shipping season where it's essentially open for nine or 10 months a year, and then it's closed for two or three months a year. There are a handful of ships that will keep operating within the Great Lakes in the sections where you can operate across the lake without going through any locks and you'll get a little bit of that, but it's not much. And so for maintenance reasons, and then for ice reasons, the system has been seasonal and that's been a challenge for growth. And it's been a challenge for our marketing efforts and trying to find uh, new users and new business in the system. A lot of companies don't want to only ship their goods. For nine or ten months of the year, they want to ship them for 12 months of the year. And so, when we uh, mm-hmm. present them with the option of, hey, why don't you use our ports and ship your goods on the Great Lakes? And 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 they re come to realize that we're shut down for part of the year. They they choose other options. And so it, it becomes a a challenge for a For any listener trying to get their head around this, I would just say, you know, if you if you like to fly on a certain airline and they told you they were going to be closed every year for three months, uh, you'd probably switch airlines. And so it's the same kind of situation and it's, it's, it's a challenge we have, but it's a difficult challenge to overcome because we're essentially fighting Mother Nature. Some have speculated that with climate change and global warming, maybe we will see a day when uh, there will be shorter wind- winters on the Great Lakes and perhaps the navigation season might be longer, but I think that's yet to be
0: seen. It's not the case yet, so. Yeah, so is, is there a way around that? Is there a way for, that we can, as a, as a Great Lakes system, as a region, and I'm talking about even our state, our state legislative delegations or state congressional delegations can sort of, are there remedies to get around that?
1: I am not aware of a uh, uh, technical engineering solution for combating the winter. There are wild ideas that have been put forward about putting technology into the locks to heat them or blow air bubbles through them or whatever so that ice doesn't form. And and I don't know, maybe those could be studied. But uh, to date, I have not seen any research that has proven that one could go ahead and operate year round. Keep in mind that even if we address the locks and their ability to operate, you still have the open waters of the Great Lakes, which during the winter can freeze and be very dangerous. And so we would have to address ice breaking capabilities Mm -hmm. so that once the ships get through the locks, they have an ability to cross the Great Lakes. Most of the ships are not built to uh, be able to smash and break ice on their own. They would require uh, special icebreakers to sort of escort them across the Great Lakes. We do have a few of these on the Great Lakes now, but we don't begin to have enough to actually operate year round during the winter months. So it's a huge idea to open the Great Lakes to winter commerce and
0: would require a lot of investment and a lot of new technology. But it seems like the ice, ice breaking capabilities, I mean, we, we know how to break ice, especially with just some of our operations in the Arctic and all these kind of things. And so it seems that it, it may be more of a will to spend it and uh, invest in those kind of capabilities rather than its availability of the capabilities. Does that make sense? Well, I think definitely
1: one could hypothetically, if one spent a lot enough money, and the, the the people we're talking about is the federal government. If, if we spent enough money and fielded enough large, heavy icebreaking vessels on the Great Lake, hypothetically, one could try to keep shipping lanes open. It all, it all depends on mother nature. We have winters that are, and then a few years later, we can have a winter that's just a killer. And so, so it mm-hmm. depends on Mother Nature. Some of the lakes freeze differently than the others. It has to do with the weather, and it has to do with the way the winds blow, believe it or not, and the, and the, and the, the uh, weather conditions. Lake Ontario, for example, tends to to almost never freeze. The lower lakes, so if we're talking about Southern Lake Michigan and Lake Erie, they're farther south. They tend to not freeze as hard, although they occasionally freeze. Lake mm-hmm. Superior tends to be the, the biggest challenge because it's so far north and it's so vast and so it tends to be quite a challenge as far as trying to keep shipping lanes open but I'll tell you if you talk to the folks who do icebreaking, it's it's not just a matter of do we have the vessels even when you have a heavy icebreaker if the ice is bad it will crawl along and make progress you know you know, advancing very little in each day, but you know it can it can do it. But I was recently speaking with a Coast Guard official who said that once with with a heavy icebreaking vessel, what in one recent winter it took them 11 days to cross Lake Ontario, a lake with a heavy icebreaker, and and that voyage you know should probably take you know a couple of days. So so it's 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 not just a matter of uh, going out and buying a bunch of big icebreakers and and deploying them. Mm Yeah, that would help, but it's still gonna be a challenge depending on the weather.
0: Gotcha, gotcha. And and you know, speaking of another challenge, what about pilotage fees? Over the last six years, overall cost of US pilotage on the Great Lakes has more than doubled. And the cost per pilot is up approximately fifty-three percent, but definitely over north of fifty percent. You know, what can we what is could you explain that issue and, and sort of you know where we are? Sure, sure. This has been an issue we've been
1: working on for for decades and have been particularly active on it over the last six or seven years. Just for background, on the Great Lakes, since the St. Lawrence Seaway opened in the late 1950s, federal law in both Canada and the United States requires that foreign ship owners, when they sail their ships into the Great Lakes, that they have to hire an American or a Canadian pilot to come on board that ship and help the foreign captain navigate that ship while it's in the Great Lake. The pilots, for, for folks who don't know what a pilot is, pilots are are essentially former ship captains that are either Americans or Canadians that we actually provide to these foreign ship captains to essentially help them navigate. They're expert navigators and they literally will go out to the cargo ship on a on a smaller ship climb and then help that large cargo ship navigate through the, st- through the uh, Great Lakes and St. Lawrence Seaway. The, guy, the one guy doesn't stay on the whole time. They kind of come on and off as the ship moves geographically through the system. But we have a very complex service provision model in the Great Lakes. There are three private companies on the U.S. side of the Great Lakes that have been sort of anointed and approved by the federal government to provide these pilotage services. And on the Canadian side, the the Canadian government provides the services to ships on the Great Lakes. And so these pilots on the Canadian side work for the government. On the U.S. side, they work for these private companies. But these three private companies on the U.S. side, they are regulated by the federal government. Essentially, they're operating small monopolies, essentially, because they don't have any competition. So the prices they charge, which, as you described, have have skyrocketed in recent years, they they are regulated by the federal government. The agency responsible is is the U.S. Coast Guard. And so the Coast Guard regulates all aspects of the provision of piloted services for the U.S. pilots on the Great Lakes. And everything from how much money they spend on their equipment to how how much money they're they're allowed to spend operating uh, and providing their services to how much money they're allowed to be paid. I mean, this is all controlled by the U.S. Coast Guard. And they have a staff of people in the Coast Guard headquarters in Washington that do nothing but this. They, they regulate these pilots. About five, six years ago, the cost that the Coast Guard was allowing to be charged started ramping up quickly by double digits every year. And just to rattle that off, Jade, because it's so shocking. <laughs> so from, from 2014 to 15, the cost went up by 20%. The next year it went up by 24%. The next year it went, went up by another 14%. The next year it went up by another 12%. The year after that, it went up by another 11%. So double digit increases time and time and time again, really expanding the cost
0: of this service what's some of the, the rationale behind the increases? Because, you know, it definitely seems to be outpacing inflation. Where where are we getting these sort of increases from? Well, let me first state, we need pilots. So the, the, the ship
1: owners and the foreign ships that come into the Great Lakes, the captains of those ships are expert at sailing around the world, but they don't know the uh, intricacies of sailing within the Great Lakes. So, so we definitely need pilots. And I'm not here to say we don't need the pilots. We do, but do they need to be multimillionaires? I don't know. I don't know that for, for a government provided service. I don't know if that's fair. So in reality, they, the Coast Guard really. I I don't know how to say this other, other than simply put it out there. The Coast Guard wants to pay more. They wants they want the pilots to be compensated higher. And you know the target compensation level is now over three hundred and eighty thousand dollars a year for each pilot. You know, in Ohio, Jade, that's that puts you in the one percent. You know, that's in a, you're in the top one percent of wage earners. So the so by the federal government's decision, these individuals are to be paid in at the top one of, percent of, of wage earners. We went to the Coast Guard and we said, you know, what how do you justify this? What what are you basing this on? And and really we never Get a good explanation. They'll argue that you know they want to be able to attract new pilot employees, and if they don't pay well, they won't be able to do that. So, that, do we need to pay $380,000 to every American to, to attract them to their jobs? No. See, what frustrates us is there are no market forces at play here, and you mm-hmm. have uh, mm-hmm. bureaucrats at, at Coast Guard headquarters that are making all these decisions. And so that's a frustration of ours. We have advocated for a deregulation of this where there's competition and pilotage is still required and pilots are still available, but they're allowed to compete with each other. And we believe market forces would make this a more reasonably priced service. But right now, as the cost increases, it's not that we are against pilots earning a good living. Our view is that as this cost becomes a runway cost it makes the
0: overall shipping system less competitive because it adds to the cost of moving goods on the great lake that's what i was worried about as well the whole you know a competition competitiveness and and what that would even mean say if we say if shipping went up 10 20% do we even have enough even at that even at that price you know are we still constrained by the number of uh, pilots we have available
1: well, we're, you know, the the Coast Guard's concerned about the number of pilots we have available, not just what they're getting paid, but but in fact to make sure we have an adequate uh, number of them to accommodate the cargo volumes and the ship volume that's moving into the system. The the challenge, and and we try to work closely with the Coast Guard and the pilots on this is. to to guess and estimate what future traffic might be. And as you know, even from the perspective of the Port of Cleveland, you have a sense of what your traffic has been historically, but it's hard to guess what the future will bring. And so these pilots, they don't just start day one. They usually require a year or two of training. And so to make sure we have enough pilots, one has to sort of guesstimate what future traffic is going to be on on the Great Lakes Seaway system. Mm-hmm. And then go out and hire enough pilot uh, staff people to staff up these uh, pilot organizations and uh, get them trained and get them out there providing service. So it's a challenge. And and we try to talk to the Coast Guard about those traffic estimates. And we try to talk to the shipping companies and we talk to the pilots and, and sort of together. And there's a lot of that together. We try to weigh in and give the regulators an idea of uh, what the pilot numbers ought to be. They've been going up in recent years. In 2014, we had 36 U.S. pilots on the Great Lakes, and uh, last year we we had 52, so it's gone up quite a few. A new demand on pilotage that's coming online that we have to prepare for is the all the new uh, cruise ships that are starting to operate on the Great Lakes. You're certainly mm-hmm. well well aware of that the Port of Cleveland is, is yeah. becoming a major cru- cruise stop, but those cruise ships require a pilot aboard. the whole time they're operating on the Great Lakes. So as those cruise ships begin to multiply and become more numerous on the Great Lakes, which is great news, which we welcome, but we're going to have to make sure we have enough pilots and a big enough pilot workforce to accommodate those cruise ships. I'll tell you something, a cargo ship having to be delayed because there isn't a pilot available. That's one thing, a cruise ship full of passengers having to be delayed because there isn't a pilot available. Oh, they all pull out their smartphones and they get on Twitter and next thing you know, they're all complaining and, and uh, yeah. uh, talking to the media. Anyway, point being, it, it, it's something that can't happen. We have to keep those cruise ships moving if we're gonna have a thriving cruise sector on the Great Lakes, which is something we all want, and and we want that economic activity. So we have to be sensitive to the fact that these are not ships filled with cargo. These are ships filled with people,
0: and they can't be left without a pilot. Got you, got you. So, you know, Steve, I'm going to put a pin in this for part one of our conversation here. And I want to thank everyone for tuning into this part of the conversation. We have a second part coming up for you on our next episode. And again, we're going to have Steve Fisher join us for that as well to talk about these greater American Great Lakes Port Association issues and just sort of what the landscape is with with these issues with regard to Washington, D.C. Steve, thanks again. and look forward to having you back. My pleasure, Jay. Thank you.